affect my behavior sometimes. It had been a blessing to see Laura. What a joy to have our sister here. And our friend David Kelly's here as well. Bless you, David. Well, you know, I think maybe if we had women preachers, Christine might be a candidate. <laughs> what a wonderful report. And of course, tomorrow, Jung Hee and Daniel, Christine and Aaron Staub are heading off to Korea. And uh, Jung Hee's going to be there a month. Uh, some of them are coming back in a couple of weeks. So a lot of stuff going on. We have a lot of people traveling today, many absent. The whole right clan, except for this old woman down here, have uh, off because of the 50th anniversary of Gordon and Sue. And they've rented a large home on the lake, and they're all filling it out. So just a lot happening with families, travel, but aren't we thankful that we're a part of this church? I mean, I am so thankful. I, I've never in my life been a part of a body in which we truly belong to each other and bear one another's burdens. Thank you, Father. In my pre-dawn prayer Monday morning, I've been in my usual routine asking God to audit my life, reveal to me those things that are not pleasing to him. And then by repentance and the visitation of the Holy Spirit, to know that I am forgiven and equipped to go on. But after a season, I turned to God and said, Lord, you know, next Sunday, I'm supposed to be in the pulpit. What word should I bring next Sunday? And then suddenly and just totally unanticipated, these words burst into my mind. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. What? <laughs> what and then there was a flow of thoughts that began to come forth related to these words I knew the origin of these words they were from the lips of Jesus our Lord Jesus had not ministered in Judea for some time because the people in and around Jerusalem the authorities wanted to kill him and so he did not walk in that area because it was not yet God's time for him to die. And so he was ministering in northern Galilee. And after a season, went a little bit south to the area of the Gadarenes where there was uh, just on the uh, northwest uh, corner of uh, rather bank of the Sea of Galilee. And when they learned that Jesus was in the area, everyone began bringing the sick and the infirm and everyone who touched his robe was healed. What a startling thing was happening. Well, back in Jerusalem, the authorities heard about what Jesus was doing and said, we can't kill him, but some way we'll stifle him. And so they sent shock troops to the region, <laughs> some Pharisees. Matthew and Mark both report this particular episode. Here's Matthew's account from Matthew 15. 
They said, Why do your disciples transgress in the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now this was a tradition that the Pharisees had developed, had nothing to do with sanitation, but strictly religious. If you by chance may have touched somebody or something in the marketplace that was unclean, you were ceremonially unclean, and therefore you had to ritualistically wash your hands in order to be ceremonially clean to eat. Jesus' disciples didn't always do that, and so they said, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands before they eat bread. Here's how Jesus responded. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father's mother. Thus you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus referring to Isaiah 29, 13. Here's what Isaiah wrote. Then the Lord said to me, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me, their reverence for me consists of tradition, learned by rote, and then God began to speak of all the disasters he was going to bring upon the land because of that. The words of Isaiah and the words of Jesus cite two ways in which we pay lip service to God, but our hearts are far from him. I believe that's what God would have me address this morning. The first of these is when our human religious traditions are substituted for or take precedence over the commands of our Lord. And Jesus cited an example of that. They said, you know, we've created this thing. Your, your, your disciples, they don't wash their hands. And Jesus said, wait a minute. You have a tradition that says somebody can just have a piece of money and say, oh, I've dedicated this to God, and therefore they don't have to take care of their parents. When God said, honor your father and mother, don't speak evil against them, anyone who does should be put to death. The principle Jesus was declaring, and the principle declared by Isaiah, said, that's not right. <laughs> If you substitute your traditions for my command, you're honoring me with your lips, but not with your heart. 
April 23rd, we had baptismal service. Now that sweet little Thorpe girl who is immersed, I can say she's my little sister because <laughs> she's now in the Lord with me. And on that day, I did bring a word about baptism, and I don't want to repeat it this morning, but I do need to repeat part of it because it so does speak to this very issue here. And I do not want to speak in any way condemning anyone, but we have to admit that those churches that substitute sprinkling for immersion truly have substituted a human tradition for a command of God. You recall on that Sunday, we even read writings from the Roman Catholic Church that instituted sprinkling, saying really the original command of God was immersion, but we changed it. One document even said it was until the 13th century before we officially made the change. God commanded immersion, not sprinkling. And then we mentioned also something I often hear on the radio. I like to listen to the radio station that has gospel music throughout the day. Sometimes teaching, when the teaching comes on, I change it because it's stupid word of faith stuff. But every now and then, the man who founded the station comes on. Let me ask you, if you were to die today, are you certain you would go to heaven? If not, then, dear radio friend, pray after me. And he has them pray the sinner's prayer. And now, heaven is yours, you know. Go find a Bible-believing church, horse feathers. If that's true, Jesus was wrong. He said, go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation. And he said, here's how you do it. First, you immerse them into the Father, Son, and Holy. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus. No, 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 no. Have them pray the sinner's prayer. <laughs> Peter got it wrong on Pentecost. People cried out, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be immersed. Oh, no, 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 Peter. Repent and pray the sinner's prayer. And Peter really got it wrong in First Peter, where he said, talking about the flood of Noah and how eight people were saved in the ark and he said the like figure we're into immersion now saves us no 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 Peter it's praying the sinner's prayer it's amazing today how many just seem to blissfully substitute clear commands of God by some human invention. It's a lot easier to just have somebody pray a sinner's prayer than to take them somewhere and dunk them in water. <laughs> of course, that can be a mistake too because there's some people that enter the baptistry dry sinners and come out wet sinners <laughs> because the heart and repentance hasn't been there as a part of that action. So this is very important, my brother and my sister. The Lord has clearly spelled out the pathway that he has set for heaven. His grace is waiting to be bestowed upon us as we, according to his pattern, obey his commands. Now those who do those things are between them and God, not between them and me. But I, for one, 
horrible fear of God could never, ever do any of those things. The second matter is what do we do when we come together on Sunday? Remember our Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took bread and said this which is broken for you is my body all of you eat of it and then at the end of the supper he took the last cup called the cup of blessing and held it up and said this cup is my blood of the new covenant all of you drink of it but notice he said as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me he didn't say how often did he as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me how often are we supposed to partake of the Lord's Supper if we're doing it God's way? As we research that subject in Scripture and the early Christian writings, we see a very clear picture. The first is in Acts 2.42, which after it says the Lord added to the church daily should be saved, and then it says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Sadly, that does not accurately re uh, really represent what the Greek says. Here's what the Greek says. They were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. All of these referring to something very specific. The teaching of the apostles, not just any, the teaching of the apostles. No, later we'll talk about the church of Ephesus, which uh, didn't accept the ministry of false apostles. To the fellowship, this is Tulsa Christian Fellowship, the fellowship, the local church, they were devoted to that. The breaking of the bread, very specific. That became a euphemism for the Lord's Supper, so used in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, also the occasion where Paul preached to midnight, then he came down and broke the bread, then after that he broke bread. So that's a euphemism for the Lord's Supper. And then the prayers, the time the church met together, not just devoted to prayer, but the prayers as the church came together to pray, something very specific. And as you read the writings of the early church, this is the pattern that you find. For instance, here's Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr wrote to the emperor of Rome, who all kinds of false things are being said about Christians. He wrote an extremely long document. Amazing to me, some guy with a pen could write all this stuff in Greek. It's so long. But chapter 67 of his apology he describes the Sunday service. Let me read it to you. On the day called Sunday, he uses the Roman name, the day of the sun. On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together into one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Memoirs of the apostles is what they call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased... The one presiding over the meeting verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things, almost like what goes on in house churches, isn't it? An exegetical sermon. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayers ended, 
bread and wine and water are brought. They always mixed water with the wine because it was alcoholic beverage, and that was the custom to mix the two. And the one presiding, presiding in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability. The people assent, saying, Amen. And then there is a distribution to each and a partition of that over which thanks have been given. And those who are absent, a portion is taken to them by the deacons. Notice that? The Lord's Supper was central to their meeting and considered so important. If somebody couldn't get there, the deacons took it to them on Sunday afternoon. I must say personally, for many years I did that on Sunday afternoon. That's no longer my role. But from the apostolic times until more modern times, every single church, every single denomination, the Lord's Supper was in the Sunday service in some manner. Now, there were some that is not true, but I'd say almost every one. One thing that caused it to stop being every Sunday was in America when the colonies were being established, and most of the denominations believed that you couldn't have the Lord's Supper unless a clergyman was present. And in these frontier churches, they didn't have a clergyman. And so a clergyman would have an itinerary. He'd go from church to church. And the Sunday he was there, they had communion. It's interesting, the Presbyterians did what's called fencing the tables. And they'd have a long table and high back chairs around it making a fence. And so on Saturday, the members of the church, one by one, would come to the visiting clergyman. He would receive their confession of sin, their repentance, uh, he'd find, have you been tithing? Have you cussed any the last week? And those who passed the test were given a wooden token. And then on Sunday morning, they showed up and presented that token, and they were given a seat in one of those high-back chairs at the table. That was called fencing the table. But that only happened when he was in town. So that was one thing that started to break the pattern of having the Lord's Supper in every service, in every church, although there were some of course, who never quite did that. So here we have clearly two areas in which we see traditions today. I mean, there are some church services, if you went to them, you'd think we're in some kind of a bizarre musical concert. Music has taken over the church loud. I've been in some churches, I had to put my fingers in my ear because it hurt me, hurt my eardrums. But there was no reverence there. It was just a whoop-de-doo time. But Sunday should be a time of solemnity as well as a time of joy and praise. Solemnity as we ponder what our Lord has done for us. Now, of course, in the early days of TCF, because TCF uh, came out of the Baptist church, many, some church members started. They called Bill Sanders, a Baptist pastor, to join them. And so TCF, in essence, was a charismatic Baptist church. And when I came to TCF in February of 81, communion was only once a month. It troubled me, but I realized, okay, Jim, just keep your mouth shut and pray, of which I did. <laughs> 1999, at the conclave of New Testament elders, I presented a paper called The Meeting. And I'd done tremendous research. If any of you all want to read that paper, it's online, it's 30 pages long. Uh, the uh, 
Dulos Press part of the TCS website. And on the way back to Tulsa, Jim Grinnell sitting behind me, I was driving. He said, you know, I think we need to start having communion every Sunday. And he said, I see motion, people moving. Whoopee. <laughs> Within two weeks, that's what started. And this morning, we had communion exactly as Jim Grinnell foresaw it in the back seat of the car in 1999. Today, we're very aware of all the apostles and Jesus set before us. And we do our best to conform to those things. Music is also an interesting thing. As you research the earliest writings of the church, post-biblical, and they talk about the role of music, one thing they had a strong aversion to was any musical instruments. They said it is because that's what is used in pagan worship and pagan ceremonies, and therefore we don't want any musical instruments in our churches. You know, that was true there for, for a really couple of hundred years before any kind of musical instruments were allowed. Does that mean it's wrong to have musical instruments because they really aren't biblical? There's a great difference between something that is unbiblical and something that is anti-biblical. Some of you have heard me illustrate this before. The synagogue is, was, was and is unbiblical. According to the covenant and law of Moses, all of the worship centered at the temple. First the tabernacle, then the temple. There was no weekly meeting, no weekly gathering. You only came for those stipulated times or you had some kind of sin you'd done wrong you need to bring a sacrifice for. But there was no weekly set meeting at all. It was all centered on the tabernacle and then the temple. When the Judeans, the southern kingdom, was carried away into captivity into Babylon and the temple had been destroyed, what are we going to do? We can't have the sacrifices and all those things that we're supposed to be doing. Not only that, our children are going to grow up to be Babylonians. And therefore, very early in the Babylonian captivity, the practice began that where there were ten adult males, they would have a sunagogos, which means a coming together a synagogue as we anglicize it. And here they finally found an old man in each case to be the rabbi, and he would teach the law of Moses. He would teach the history of Judaism, doing their best to keep everyone really followers of God according to the commandments of Jehovah. And when they came back to the promised land, they brought the synagogue with them. Now, that was unbiblical. Was it anti-biblical? No, because Jesus Christ used the synagogue. He spoke in the synagogue. He taught in the synagogue. He never condemned the synagogue. To me, that illustration says unbiblical doesn't necessarily mean anti-biblical. It is only anti-biblical when it replaces something God has clearly said 
should be a part of our church. So Sunday morning, we have guitars, we have piano, every now and then a drum. <laughs> and don't they help us in our worship? We're thankful today for the blessings that God has given us in the musicians. We have two professional musicians <laughs> on our worship team. But I'm going to say something here, too. You know, there's a real risk, in a way, for musicians, and that's the next point. One thing we have to be careful about is doing the right thing, but our heart is not really engaged. February 1941, four months after my 10th birthday, as Dr. C.W. Lipsy at the close of the sermon gave the invitation to come and accept Christ, I went forward. It was Boy Scout Sunday. The custom in those days was to attend church in your scout uniform on Boy Scout Sunday, and I was a cub in my Cub Scout uniform. By the way, the thing that developed me more in character, in many ways, a man of God, was not the church. It was the Boy Scouts. Matter of fact, I kind of had an aversion to church youth groups. I went with my uncle and aunt one time to pick up a bunch of folks from church camp. They were at the heart of the hills. And I said, well, that's not camping. They're staying in buildings. No, they got girls there. Some of these girls were crying because they were leaving their friends. I didn't want anything part of that, those pussy willow wimpy guys. I was never, so church youth to me was out of the question. But the scout law, a scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. And the scout oath, on my honor, I will do my best to obey the scout law and to God and my country, God first, you see? And so that whole sense of reverence was a part of my Boy Scout upbringing. I'm thankful for the Boy Scouts. But oh my goodness, on that first Sunday when I went forward and was immersed into Christ, and I will never forget that experience to the day I die, that water was like being in a tub of Alka-Seltzer. I don't know what the Holy Spirit was doing. He was doing something special. But the next Sunday, having been immersed, then okay, I was qualified to take the Lord's Supper. And the way the Lord's Supper was conducted in that church was they had every elements were on the communion table, elders prayed over it, and then we had deacons who would take the tray with the bread and, and a tray with the cup exactly as we have back here, and they would go to a row and hand it to you to be passed down. <clears throat> Deacon on the other end, then pass to the next row. When that, those two trays were presented to me, I could not partake. I was so awed, so awed with what I was holding in my hand, I could hardly touch it and quickly passed the tray on. But you know, that was 82 years ago. <laughs> and having taken the Lord's Supper every Sunday, that's 52 times a year for 82 years, except for that little interview in my early time I have to every time remember Jim don't just do this make sure with a repentant heart 
you are truly doing it, not just something you're doing by rote. It is so easy for us in our walk with the Lord to just do things by rote. And that's really, of course, what Isaiah said. <laughs> you're just doing what you, the tradition you got from your fathers, you just learned it by rote. The Apostle John was uh, on the Isle of Patmos. He had been exiled. Jesus appeared to him one day, staggered by the vision that he saw. And then the Lord gave him what for us today is the Revelation, the last book in our Bible. And it started by Jesus dictating to John letters to the seven churches of Asia. And as you follow that, here's Ephesus, and then it follows the road. It's interesting, it just follows this particular road, goes northeast, then south, then south, then south, back west, north, back to Ephesus. Some have said that's a Roman mail route. Whether or not it was, I don't know, but it is clearly that road in every place there was a town with a church Jesus had John write a letter for that particular church. The first one was Ephesus. The Lord commends it greatly. They have done everything just right. Very careful with all their doctrines. They'll have nothing to do with false prophets. And even says, you hate the Nicolaeans, which I also hate. And whoopee, that's the kind of church I'd like to be a part of. But wait a minute, God said I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. They were doing everything right. Very orthodox. But their heart, their heart was not from whence that behavior came. You know, TCF, we have, in my opinion, a group of elders that is exceeded by no other group of elders in any church I've ever been a part of. And I've ministered in 18 states. But I'll tell you, we have a group of elders at TCF that will not in any way tolerate false doctrine, tolerate anything that truly is not of God. But thanks be to God, <laughs> every one of these elders has a heart for God. Nothing is done mechanically. And I think that's true of the church as a whole, isn't it? We thank God for the life of the Holy Spirit that is so real at TCF. Thank you, Father, for all that we have here. Brother and sister, I'm so thankful that God lets me be a part of this church. And I'm so thankful that in this church I see the life of the Lord in a way that probably puts a smile on God's face. This is not to brag. This is not to say, look at us, we'll show you how to do it. But it's thanks be to God, the way you've had your hand upon us through the years, all the trouble and struggle that we've been through so many, many times, yet never have we felt the absence of our Lord. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Then 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily to the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So not only in our Sunday services, not only in the corporate body, but even in our everyday lives, let us do things from the heart as worship to God. May God's blessing rest upon you.